Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By rallying research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research, man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Scarrow is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and it's great having you back with me again today. I really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the T a part of your weekly golf content. This week, I have four more fantastic guests that I've been looking forward to sharing with you. First up is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. He's working with me on my swing through the V1 video app, and as much as I hate to say it, he's right about my swing. He's making corrections that are immediately paying off for me. I'll unfortunately have to bring that up when he joins me here in just a few minutes. Following TP, I'm going to get a return visit from five-time winner on the PGA Tour, now a great broadcaster, Jim Gallagher Jr. Following Jim and making her next on the T debut is going to be Lisa O'Hurley. Lisa initially took lessons in the game of golf from Billy Ray Brown. Looking forward to hearing about that story. She played her college golf at Baylor. She was a part of the startup team at the Golf Channel back in 1995, along with our good friend Keith Hirschland. She is now the founder and CEO of Lola Sport Apparel. And if you're a Seinfeld fan, you're going to remember her husband, John O'Hurley, who played Jay Peterman on that show. So looking forward to having Lisa as part of tonight's show. She'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. And then we're going to round things out with a return visit from another one of the top instructors in our game, and that is Shane LeBaron. Shane is out at Cherry Hills in Colorado, site of several majors, including this year's U.S. Amateur Tournament, along with Arnold Palmer's big win in the 1960 U.S. Open, Andy North also winning a U.S. Open there, Phil Mickelson won the 1990 U.S. Am there, and Jack Nicklaus won the U.S. Senior Open there in 1993. Shane is annually rated among the top teachers in our game, so looking forward to catching up with him. He'll join me at the top of the next hour. So we're going to have a lot of fun, folks, over the next 90 minutes or so. And as always, I can't thank you enough for tuning in and taking the journey with me this week. I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the McLemore, which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill Berg and Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. you got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. 
Go online to MacLemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. All right, now back in next on the tee with me, of course, is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. As you know by now, if you want to play your best golf ever this season, reach out to Tom via his website, TomPatrick.com. Then set up a golf lesson with him at Club Champion down in Naples, Florida. Or go on the V1 app, upload videos of your golf swing, and select Tom as your instructor, and he can do what he's doing for me. And that's show you what adjustments you need to make in order to play better. You can also follow Tom on Instagram at TomPatrickGolf. Be sure to subscribe to his YouTube channel so you can get those over 300 free video playing lessons. And as always, it is such a privilege for all of us to have Tom back and next on the tee with me. Hey, TP, how are you, my friend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow, tonight. Look at you. All right, Tom, let's get right into it because we got a lot to talk about tonight. So I got to get your thoughts. Let's do it. Let's do it. it. I got to get your thoughts on the open. What did you think about what you saw? Wow. That was, um, you know, I, you know, you and I are both big Masters fans and and we look, we wait, we wait for April every year, but there's something about the open championship that just, I couldn't turn it off. I got up early, set my alarm early in the morning before I went to work. I, you know, I got up early, watched a couple hours, like three, four o'clock in the morning, crazy stuff. I just couldn't turn it off. And, you know, I, I've always been kind of a big Brian Harmon fan because we're about the same stature. Actually, I tower over Brian, actually. Tower over him. Um, <laughs> but as you know, my mantra, Chris, short game, short game, short. That was a clinic four days. That was a clinic. Drove the ball and played beautifully. Just never, you know, never got out of his rhythm, and and got up on and around the green and just went to work like a surgeon. It was just, uh, it was great. And 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 I, I think Hoylake did a hell of a job hosting it, you know. And and the normal cast of characters were hanging around, but they just couldn't catch the kid. And he just, he just, you know, kept him at bay and really put on a clinic for four straight days. Tom on. Saturday, then again on Sunday, Brian got off to a little bit of a rocky start, a couple of early bogeys, but both days came right back with birdies. Talk about the mental toughness to not allow the, the bogeys to get you off track and start to snowball. I'll tell you, it, it's a great question, Chris, and a great point. I mean, you know, for a guy who's never won a major, he's only won two events on tour in his life, although his pedigree is actually very, very good. You know, in that situation when, you know, it's kind of a life-changing week uh, and you have that thing right at your fingertips and, and you get off, like you said, with a couple of rocky starts and right the ship, people have no idea resiliency and 
and the fortitude and, and the concentration and the confidence you have to have to say, let's, you know, let's just stay in our process. Let's just stay in our routine. Let's not deviate. We've, we've played really good golf this week. You know, we've got a lot of holes in front of us. So let's just keep doing what we're doing. Did an unbelievable job in staying present and staying in the moment. So let's take that a step further. Speaking of staying in the process and not let things bother you, as Brian said during his post-tournament press conference, after he made his second bogey on Saturday, as he's walking past a guy, the guy says to him, Harmon, you don't have the stones for this. And Brian said that actually helped. It snapped him back into that I'm good enough to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go through my process, and the next shot is going to be good. i tell you what, TP, I love that. Yeah, he needs to find that guy and send him a case of champagne. <laughs> Thank, thank him for being around. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? Though that's just incredible. No. Somebody would, would say something to that. You know, during the in the heat of the battle, would say something like that. I mean, we did, but to his credit, he used it as a motivation, not as a deterrent, and uh, and it did right his ship. You know, you know, good for him. Good for him. And last year, Lee Trevino saw Brian on the range at the Open at St Andrews, and he said to him. You must work really hard as a little man in a big man's game. It's the old David versus Goliath thing. You know how David beats Goliath on the golf course with chipping and putting. Those are your rocks and stones. And TP, I know you've you've seen Brian grinding on his short game out at Sea Island. How perfect is it what Trevino said and what you saw Harmon practicing? Yeah, I've 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 been to Sea Island a number of times. Uh as a guest to some friends and, and you know, that's where you get ocean forest, he practices and plays. And, you know, I don't know him at all, Chris. I, I, you know, I've, I've been introduced to him one time, but that's about it. But I've never seen him hit a full shot while I've been there. I've seen him hit bunker shots, chips and pitches, and I've seen, I've seen him work on his putting. Um, and, and you know how I feel about that. I, I you know, I, I, I won my biggest event of my life as a college player with the same mantra. I, you know, I never hit it very far. I, I, my game was keeping in play and going to work on and around the greens the same way. So, you know, it, it was just validation for me. Of, you know, here's here's a perfect example of, uh, I guess we don't have to turn and roll the ball back, Chris. I mean, here's a guy who doesn't hit <laughs> very far and, and, and got it done on a golf course that, you know, really was playing longer than uh, an open championship normally plays because of the weather. Um, and all the bombers around him couldn't catch him. Uh, hitting it, you know, can you imagine how far how far Rory would hit a pass Brian Harmon? I mean, right. it'd be like I get a skirt on, and <laughs> and never never let wow. it never let it the term. Just did his thing, and plotted along and went to work. So, yeah, I mean, I I think for the average player at home, the, the club player, they all come to me wanting more yardage, and I say, listen, can you hit it in play? And not only are they short, but they're crooked, you know. So. I said, listen, you're not going to get much longer. Your golf swing is your golf swing. We control the face and the path a little bit better and get the ball between, you know, between the goalposts and then go to work with a short game. Not many club members want to buy into that, but, but they should take a lesson from Brian Harmon on this one. And, Tom, speaking of the weather, it was terrible during the final round. Rain pouring down, seemed like throughout the entire round, which makes putting difficult. And the guys that you know, were coming up short, on their putts over and over again. How hard is it to putt with a wet putter face on a wet ball on greens that are getting slower by the moment? Well, that's when, you know, Chris Rua, that's when, you know, having a great caddy, a tour quality caddy makes all the difference in the world because his job is to keep that equipment dry, 
you know, keep, keep you basically as dry as you can and, you know, certainly keep everything in the bag dry. Um, and he had Mr. Tway there with him, who's, who's a veteran, uh, as all these guys do. They have, they have very seasoned, very, very talented caddies and guys that are, you know, not just bag carriers. This is just a whole different, you know, set of skills. Um, it, but it's really hard, even even that being said, in that condition. You know, I mean, not only do you have the pressure, not only you're on a championship golf course and you're playing in a major, but now you have the weather working against you. It, it's it takes a it takes a lot of it takes some big stones to hang in there in that situation. You know, I guess Brian Harmon has those big stones. There you go. He had the 54-hole lead at the U.S. Open a few years ago at Aaron Hills, and he said what got him in trouble then was thinking about what could be. And it would seem impossible to sleep on a 54-hole lead and not allow those thoughts to kind of creep in along the way. How do you teach your students to stay focused on the task at hand the night before or during a final round when you have an opportunity to win? Let's go back to our, our love of the Masters in April. And, and, you know, the mantra there is the golf tournament just starts on the back nine on Sunday, right? Right. So I said to all my kids, you know, whether they're playing junior terms for 36 holes or, or college players from playing 54 hole events or a 72 hole event as an amateur, you know, you know, talk to me when you're in the 10th tee of the last round and you're, and you're, you're in contention. That's when you can talk to me about that. That's when you talk to me about maybe being a little nervous or, or, you know, being a little uncomfortable. It doesn't start until then. You got to get to that point to deserve or have the right to be nervous. Um, and quite frankly, Chris, when I played my best golf, if I wasn't nervous going to the first tee on the last day, I knew I wasn't tuned in. I, I wasn't really involved the way I should be involved. I always, I wanted to have that little nervous feeling, that little, you know, dry throat, that little trouble breathing, you know, those little hands shaking a little bit, and little sweaty palms. I, I knew that meant that was I was I was ready to play. Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. Justin Thomas has been struggling this season. Missed the cut at the open. Shot an opening round eighty-two. He shot eighty-one earlier this year at the U.S. Open. The mind of a golfer, as we talk about the mental game, can be very fragile at times. What's your assessment of where J, JT is at and what he needs to get out of it? Well, I, I think he should take a little playbook right from his friend Ricky Fowler and his other friend Jordan Spieth who have both gone through recent situations where they vanished for a while. And and I think, you know, Paul Eisinger said something to me years ago, like Chris, I'll never forget it. He said something similar this week. He changed it a little bit. But when he said it to me years ago, he said, you know, when, when you're a good player and you start playing bad, you think you're never going to play good again. And when you're playing really good, you never think you're going to play bad again. And, and we both know neither one of those things is true, T.P., I said, you know, that's so true. He goes, he said to me, the guy who recovers the fastest is the guy who takes his finger off the panic button the soonest. You know, and I think we, like you said, they're very fragile. We, you know, we, we get in these quandaries sometimes when things aren't going right and just don't feel the contact very well. We're not controlling the ball flight. And we're, we're, we're one swing away, Chris, one feeling away, one, one little thought away from turning this thing around. And, we overcomplicate it. We go, we go searching for the Holy Grail when the answer is probably right in front of us somewhere. You know, I, JT is an unbelievable talent. Listen, this guy is one of the best players on the planet and has been for a while. Um, 
my, my advice is simply, you know, just you know, take a deep breath and step back a little bit and un- uncomplicate the situation. And the answer is not a million miles away. The answer is right in front of you somewhere. Yeah, to that end, if you look at how we played in the subsequent round, I mean, this past weekend, I mean, you shot even par the next day. You go from 82 to even par. It, you can't be that far off, right? I mean, it's just a matter of keeping it together for four rounds. I, I would think in JT's situation, to your point, you just have to say, just just calm your mind. You're fine. Look, you just you you, you backed up an 82 with a 71. I mean, you're fine. Chris, you never you never. I, I'm not only talking about JT right now. I'm talking to all our amateurs out there, all club players out there listening. You're never as far away as you think you are. You never are. You just, it's, it's a fine line. And you just, you, to your point, calm the mind. It, that's e- easier said than done. Right. But, but if you let panic run rampant, you're not going to find your way back. You're just not going to find your way back. Tom, we had a very unfortunate situation happen this last weekend out <laughs> on the Canadian <laughs> tour. <laughs> Justin oh. Doden opened the tournament with a 68. Then on Friday, his card read 71. The only problem was he shot 73. When one of his playing partners saw that he stood at three under par for the tournament and made the cut, the playing partner was confused because Doden made a seven on the final hole for that 73, which meant he didn't make the cut. When that playing partner approached the scorers and looked at the scorecard, that seven that he had marked down on 18? was magically erased and replaced with a five instead. And when tournament officials called Doden and, you know, talked about what happened here, Doden abruptly withdrew from the tournament. Yesterday, he admitted that he cheated, and he put out a tweet acknowledging that he cheated and asked everyone to forgive him. And we've all made regrettable mistakes, but I don't know, TP, where does he go from here? You're asking me where I would send him? Where would you send him? I would send him to a lifetime banishment from the game of golf. I mean, there's no place, there's no place in this game for that. And, and I'm sorry. I mean, it's unfortunate. And I'm sure he's regretful. Although, you know, Chris, my belief is, my belief is once a cheater, always a cheater. Maybe this is the first time you get caught, but can you imagine, let's just think about this for a second. He does what he does. And thinks that for the next two days, those guys he played with on the, on the second round aren't going to notice. They know what he shot. They signed his card. They kept his card. Okay, that that they're not going to know when they see him on the range the next day, or see him on the score sheet the next day, or the scoreboard the next day. That they're not going to say something. Do you think it's just going to they're going to forget about it for Saturday and Sunday? I, I don't know what you know. Somebody like this is thinking. I think that that can actually work. Um, and that, as far as I'm concerned, Chris, with all the things I've ever seen in my career, that's the most flagrant cheat situation I've ever seen in my life. To think you can erase the score and write in a new score. Now, think about this. This is what we haven't really talked about. If you erased the score at 18 and changed it, he had to erase the last box too and change it. Because the last box said 73. And the last hole said seven. So you had to race the seven and change it to five. He had to race the 73 and change it to 71. He, he didn't, he didn't erase one box. He had to erase two boxes. Right. And nobody was going to notice that. And nobody was going to 
bring that to light over the next 36 holes at some point. And not only did he affect his life, but by making the cut, he eliminated somebody else from making the cut that was playing by the rules. So I'm sorry. I, I'm sure you're very regretful now. We're always regretful when we get caught, aren't we? <laughs> once, when we get when we get caught, we're always apologetic. Once we get you know caught with our hand you know hand in the hen house, guess what, my friend? You should be banished from the game of golf and never teed up in a professional event anywhere on the planet again. I'm sorry. Wow, harsh. Not I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> it's not harsh. harsh. It's not harsh. It's not harsh. It's deserving. It's not harsh. It's not harsh at all, Chris. It's not harsh in the least amount. Of, it's not even close to being harsh. It is 100% deserving. You do not play golf with not having perfect integrity. That's, yeah. not, that's not our game. It's just not our game. Right. And a game where you're supposed to call penalties on yourself, right, and have the utmost integrity, this, this, doesn't, this flies in the face of that. So I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Got no time for that. Sorry. Tom, earlier today, you were telling me about a great par three course over on the east coast of Florida in Palm Beach. Tell our listeners about it. Yeah, so I took three of my juniors yesterday because we loaded them up in the car at 7 o'clock in the morning in uh, Fort Myers, Florida. We drove across Alligator Alley. For those of you who haven't been across the alley, it's, it's quite a journey to the east coast and, and then up, uh, up 95 to the Palm Beach par three. And I want you to picture this in, in lush, rich, La La Land of Palm Beach, Florida, on the ocean, between the ocean and the intercoastal waterway, is, is I'm, I'm going to guess about 80 acres that comprise the Raymond Floyd Par 3 course, owned by the city of Palm Beach. It's public. It's 18 Par 3s. 12 of them are on the Atlantic Ocean side, and six of them are on the intercoastal waterway. A really dear friend of mine, Tony Shatter, there from my Met New York days, we grew up in the business together, has been the golf professional there for a um, hundred years and uh, had us over as his guest. And um, the kids have never seen anything like it. It's so much fun. Um, it, they do 55,000 rounds of golf every year. Um, and, and besides the golf course being wonderful, which it really is, they've, they've got a little clubhouse on the property and the restaurant upstairs, the clubhouse, the food is absolutely phenomenal breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you can, Sit upstairs and and overlook the Atlantic Ocean. It's 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 an incredible day. It's a, it's a great day, and it's uh, it's open to anybody in the world that wants to go play there and make a tea time. And if you haven't done it, and and you know you go to Florida and you play all these, you, know, you want to play PGA National, you want to play TPC Sawgrass, you want to play you know all these great places in Florida. You got to play the Palm Beach Par Three. You got to go do it. It's just so much fun. It's unbelievable. And the kids, we played thirty six holes. Uh, had lunch upstairs and then drove back across in the evening uh, and they had a blast. And, they, and I, I, I usually go there and try to play there myself with somebody once or twice a season. Um, and, and it never gets old. It's just, 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 a, it's a great day. Great day. Tom switching gears again. I'm going to put the spotlight on, on me and my golf swing. And as uh -oh. much as, uh -oh. as, as much uh -oh. as this pains me to say it, as you've been coaching me via the V1 app with my golf swing, your assessment may actually be right. Talk about what early extension is, what I was doing, and how to fix it. You know, early extension is a is a, a new, if you will, a nouveau term of the last, uh, I'm going to call it five years. 
We used to call we used to simply call standing up out of your posture, but now we call it early extension because that's that's cool. That's the way to say it now. Um, but basically, what it means is you start in an inclination in a specific posture, and you basically in your downswing, you know, you, you early extend, you stand up out of your posture. You, you know, you you lose your you lose your you, you lose your posture inclination that you that you had constructed an address. And we know that the sweet spot's not very big on the golf club. So once you start standing up out of your posture, hitting solid golf shots or controlling the face of the club goes bye-bye very quickly. So um, when I got your film last week, your down-the-line view, um, it was really easy to draw some graphics on the screen and show you where you were starting and where you were arriving, how you were arriving at impact uh, wasn't helping you very much. Now, listen, it sounds simple. Oh, I just got to stay in my posture. And as you found out, Chris, it isn't that simple. Uh, so, you know, these things called habits, they take time to change in a lot of reps and a lot of feels. But um, that's the great thing about the V1 app. You know, it, there's, there's Chris Mascaro in Atlanta, Georgia, and there's Tom Patrick in Naples, Florida. And we, we have a, a coaching relationship that, uh, you know, gets pretty detailed. As you've seen, Chris, not only do you get full audio and video back, but you get graphics on the screen, you get drop-in drills. Um, you, you might as well be standing right in front of me. It's it's a wonderful technology, and it, it allows you to stay connected with your coach no matter where you are. I, you know, I'm coaching people from overseas right now. I'm coaching people from all over the country, all over the country, of all skill levels uh, that I'll never probably meet in person. You know, people that I'll never actually probably have a face to face lesson with ever, but yet we communicate on a weekly basis about their golf game, and they're on a program allowing them to hit better golf shots. There you go, because. Immediately when you showed me, it started to make it made a it made sense, and b it made a difference in how I was striking the golf ball. So I I know I've got other things that I need to work on because essentially what you said to me is you, you know there isn't much you have to change about your golf swing besides everything. So I'm uh, step one. I've done. I, I'm I've gotten step one. I've got to get get to step through uh, two through ten. And hopefully by the end of it, uh, I'm actually playing some good golf. So you know, I you know, Chris, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you a little bit there. I, I think the bones of your golf swing are actually pretty good. I think the motion you make is actually pretty athletic. Uh, and the thing we're not talking about with the, with the listener right now is we also made a bunch of comments with you about how you set up to the golf ball, the width of your stance, right? your overall posture. And we talked a little bit about your left-hand grip. Um, we, did, we, did, we made f- quite a few comments about how you actually stand up to the golf ball to start. Um, I think the motion you make, and yes, you early extend right now, but the actual mo- motion you make, the bones of the motion is, are actually pretty good, you know. But and, but if and you I just change if you just change your grip, your stance, your posture, your setup, and your swing, yeah, you're you're fine. Well, uh, listen, outside of that, everything's perfect. Yeah, you know, well, and you're and you're you're being a little hard on yourself right now because listen, here's the deal. When I look at a tour player that's really a great ball, I'll use Adam Scott for example, who's a great ball striker. He looks like he can't miss a golf shot when he stands up to it and doesn't miss very many, right? He stands up to it, puts his hands on the club beautifully. His, he establishes a very good base, a very good posture. His aim and alignment is good. His ball position is pristine for a club he has in his hand. You know, so it's easy to hit a good golf shot from there. I'll tell you, 99% of the time, the swing ills that we see with people are born in the setup. And one of the things we did with you, we moved you a little further away. We got you a little more inclined at the start. And those are the things that are going to lead to making it easier to not really extend. 
So we always do, we're always going to do, no matter what we do, Chris, if I give you a golf lesson and I don't talk about something in your setup, every time we talk about your golf swing, you should fire me. Good to know. Keep that in my back pocket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> TV, before I let you go, my friend, remind our listeners how they can get a lesson from you. Plus follow you online and on social media. Yeah, Chris, right now I'm, I'm a uh, club champion in Naples indoors, trying to stay out of the heat most days. Um, I'll start back at Crown Colony on around October 20th. Uh, that lesson book will open up for booking uh, for the winter sometime in mid-September. Uh, and, and of course, you know, all the regular places, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And then the website is tompatry.com. Um, but the place they can always find me is right here with you every other Tuesday night, which is one of my favorite places in the whole world to hang out with you, my friend. And, uh, great guests all the time. You do your homework better than anybody that does this. That's why this podcast is the best golf podcast on the planet as was told by Mark Kalkovecchia today on Twitter. Um, and Kalk knows what he's talking about. He, he has a car jug, by the way. He, so he, he knows. Rumor has about, it. Yeah, he knows a little bit about the game of golf. And the guy you have coming on next, by the way, is a, uh, is a hell of a player himself. And please tell Jimmy I said hi. We'll do it. TP, you're the best, my friend. I can't thank you enough. I'm already looking forward to two weeks from now when we get to have you back on. In between now and then, stay safe. We'll catch up soon. I love you, pal. Same, same back at you. Take care, TP. That is the great Tom Patrick, folks, and it just doesn't get any better than that guy. Um, you can follow him on Instagram at Tom Patrick Golf. TomPatrick.com is his website, and be sure to subscribe to that YouTube channel to get those free playing lessons and tips. Like I say, I'm very lucky that uh, I have the privilege of having Tom as part of the show every other week. We're all lucky that he is part of the show every other week. And like I say, looking forward to two weeks from tonight already. Okay, coming up next is going to be a guy who won five times out on the PGA Tour and has become a wonderful friend of this show over the last couple of years and someone who has quietly mentored me, and that is Jim Gallagher Jr. Before I get to Jim, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arco's and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arco's Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. Com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. 
Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50 plus protection. From solids to bold eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Now back in Next on the T with me is Jim Gallagher Jr. Jim has become a wonderful friend of the show over the last few years. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is just down the road from my hometown of Pittsburgh. He grew up in Indiana and played his college golf at the University of Tennessee, where he is the most decorated player in UT men's golf history. He led it all four years from 1980 to 1983. He was named the Volunteers Rookie of the Year in 1980, and he helped them win their first SEC championship that season. He tied for fifth in the individual play. 1981, he won the Eastern Kentucky Invitational, and he was named All-American in 1982 and All-SEC in 80 and 82. In that 82 season, he won the Indiana Amateur and was named Team MVP. 1983 was a huge year for Jim. He repeated at that Indiana Amateur and added wins at the Indiana Open and Wildcat Invitational. Plus, he was presented with the team's leadership award. He played in the NCAA tournament in 1980, 81, and 82, and he helped the Vols to 6th, 7th, and 21st place finishes. He turned pro in 1983 and joined the PGA Tour in 84. He won five times out on the PGA Tour. He was a member of the victorious 1993 Ryder Cup and 1994 President's Cup teams. He was inducted into the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame in 1995, and last summer, he joined his wife, Sissy, as a member of the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame and I couldn't be more thrilled to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming back on the show. Everything good, Chris? There you go. Um, you know what? Every time I try to do this, I can't unmute myself, which I think most <laughs> of America would like to have me muted. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> Jim, I got to have you on the show early this season, back in March. Catch us up. What's been going on with you this summer? I've been busy. Uh, I've been out uh, traveling. I did the LPGA the last couple of weeks, did the PGA Tour, uh, and, and just been busy. I haven't done much studio. I'm going to actually going to the studio uh, this week of 3M, but uh, uh, just been busy doing live golf and having a great time and periodically getting to see my five grandsons and, and having a great time with it. I'm actually going to get to do the Ryder Cup uh in Italy, which just found that out about three weeks ago, so I'm super excited about doing that. So uh, U.S. Open. I was out there with uh, just an amazing LACC. So I've been I've been rocking and rolling a couple of days off here and there, but having a great time. So, Jim, I got to get your thoughts on the Open Championship this past week. And what did you think about what you saw from Brian Harmon? Uh, the times I got to watch because I was doing the LPGA event, the Dow up at uh, Midland, Michigan. But, man, to go around that golf course and, and to beat that field the way he played, that's just phenomenal. Uh, and, and didn't waver. I, I think people forget how great a player he was as a junior player and a college player. I mean, there's a reason the Georgia Bulldogs are so good. He he played like a like a bulldog. I mean, he didn't back down. It, it's always amazing, you know. He may not play the way he wanted to the last few months or whatever you want to call it, and maybe only with two wins. Uh, but what a big win for him! And and I just think he was focused. And, and some weeks are your week, and it was definitely his week. And and just phenomenal golf, especially in the conditions Sunday. I got to watch a little bit of it because I was traveling Sunday uh, with with the LPGA event finishing up on Saturday. But to, to beat that field by that many and just 
it, it got close for a while, but he hung in there. So uh, credit to him for great playing, and uh, who knows what it'll do. Hopefully, it continues to great play. Probably gives him a really, obviously, great chance to be on the Ryder Cup team as well. Speaking of the conditions, yeah, they were pretty miserable mm. on Sunday. You played in four Open Championships in the early to mid-90s. Got to imagine you played through some similar conditions. What are some of the tougher conditions you had to deal with in the Opens you played in? You know, I was actually pretty fortunate in the Open to have some pretty good weather. Now, I played the senior uh, Open uh, at Walton Heath. My son Thomas is caddying, and, and I hadn't played a lot, you know, those five or ten years I was home, and I took him over to caddy and he's, you know, we get through the second day and everything's going well about the fourth hole. He says, dad, I thought you said the weather gets bad. And I'm not talking like the next hole. It just turned into rain and wind. And, and I end up missing the cut by a shot. And I said, well, you wanted to know what bad weather was. It, it definitely was that, but I always approached the open and sissy. My wife would go over with me, uh, not as a vacation, but as a thing that a couple, uh, we as a couple could do. And I think that took the pressure off. And allowed me to have some fun over there. I got to play Muirfield was my first one. Bones actually caddied for me. I missed a cut of shot. Turnberry, I loved that. was one of my favorites. Uh, Royal St. George, I didn't play that well there. I had just come off a win uh, at Anheuser-Busch. And, and uh, of course, I got to play St. Andrews the year John Daly won. And, and what a treat. Uh, I actually walked a practice round with Jack Nicholas. I think it was on a Monday afternoon. We went out with my caddy. And... and He's out there with three clubs. And I said, Jack, do you mind if I walk with you? And I took notes, but not like I did that day. He showed me exactly how to play St. Andrews. And you didn't always go down that fairway you were playing. I thought that was a cool part of it. Uh, and that's something that I always cherish. And we got to somewhere on the back nine. And I go, ah, now I know why he said to go down that other fairway because the wind had switched. So uh that would be my favorite open uh you know just of all those is being at st andrews walking a practice round with jack nicholas and just uh, a phenomenal week and sissy my wife was out there as well so a lot of fun so how do you take in playing an open championship at the home of golf with the greatest player of all time i mean that's that to me that's a lot that's sensory overload I yeah mean, you're, you're trying to take in st andrews and now you're also getting an opportunity to pick jack's brain that's got to be a lot to contend with just in that. It, it was. I, I tell everybody, you can't win that on Jeopardy, you know? So it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, I'm just, I, I thought to myself, is this really happening? Am I actually one-on-one -on -one with Jack Nicholas, the greatest player, or Tiger Woods, whatever we want to say, at that point, the greatest player to ever played the game on the home of golf, on a golf course that he had so much success on? I mean, like I told it, it was the most fascinating I still talk about it like it just happened yesterday. I just remember everything about it. I remember even when I'll do some coverage uh, in the studio, I'll just like, here, Jack told me to hit it here. Jack told me to hit it there. I just, and I didn't always remember those things, but that day I took it all in and I was really comfortable being around him because I was, you know, somewhat intimidated, but he never made me feel that way. Uh, as we got older, I felt like with Jack to get his attention, we would talk about hunting and fishing and we talk about grandkids. And you'd have his attention for as long as you wanted. But he's always been great to me. And I have the just the most respect for he and Barbara. They're just two of the most wonderful people. And, and to be able to do that, uh, I've always thanked him. I, I When I worked the Masters last year, was able to, they were in there in the studio with us. And, and I was just like, you know, Jack Nicholas gave me a place to play when I was first on tour. I didn't have anywhere to play in South Florida. Got me on at Frenchman's Creek when they were managing it. Gave me a place to practice. Uh, and, and he just, he's always been kind to me. 
And I'll always be uh, thankful for that. I, I call it a friendship. Uh, and he's uh, always treated me, you know, just the best of, of anybody that, that I played the PGA Tour with. And you said he was carrying three clubs? That's all? Yeah, I think it was like a maybe a, a wedge, a putter. I don't even know if he brought his driver. It was just three clubs because uh, he wanted to hit shots around the green. I think it was more about around the green. As I recall, we he might have had a driver, but it was mostly just three or four clubs, just Three clubs is all it was in a, in a putter, maybe just working around the greens. He already wow. knew how to play the golf course. He was just putting his mind back in that same frame and walking it. And then, of course, I was there and we walked around. Uh, and my caddy says, you've got to go over there and walk with him. Uh, and I thank Dan McQuilkin for doing that because I probably otherwise might have shied away from it. But he convinced me it was and it was the right thing to do. And I'm so glad and thankful that I did do that. Brian Harmon, in his post-tournament press conference, he talked about how a guy said to him on Saturday after he made a couple of early bogeys, Harmon, you don't have the stones for this. And I know social media tends to be a negative place. Sports talk radio can be a negative place. But I, I really hate stuff like that to hear that, that people are saying. So I can't imagine the gumption to say something like that to Brian Harmon as he's walking past him, by the way. Did you ever get heckled like that at a tournament? Not so much at a tournament, but before the Ryder Cup, Golf World came out with, I guess, their, I don't know what you want to call it, feature of who was playing and, and kind of kind of brief synopsis of everybody's career. And, and I remember reading the article that stated about me that I was the uh, kind of player you get with the system they have, and the Europeans would make chopped liver out of me, and I had the heart of a lamb. Wow. Uh, so I, I it just it actually made me angry. And I think when I got over there, the pressure was there. It took the pressure off because it was to the point where I'm going to prove, and I'm not even going to say who wrote it. We know who wrote it. Uh, I never met the guys. That's at, at that time, I'd never met them. Uh, and I'm, I'm friends with one of the other guys, one guy from England and one guy, uh, or one guy from Europe, one guy from uh, uh, the U.S. that did the writing. And, and I was like, how do they come up with something like that? They don't know me. They really have never even met me. And so I remember telling everybody on the, on the plane ride over, and I'll never forget when I finally beat Seve. And Zay, I was telling them, they were calling me Lamb Chop. That kind of gave me that Lamb Chop. Uh, was kind of the nickname I had that whole week. And so Zinger grabbed me after I beat Seve, and he grabbed me by the face. He goes, you're now killer Lamb Chop. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and to top it all off, when I got home, my oldest daughter, who's now 30, Mary Langdon, was standing there in a T-shirt and a diaper going, my daddy beat Seve. It just didn't get much better than that. No so, doubt. Uh, and I did. I had a successful week. I think because of that, it kind of motivated me like it maybe did Brian, where maybe it takes the pressure off. Uh, I, I never really failed. I never got heckled at a course, but that that was just bulletin board material. Uh, but now it's at such a different level. We just, unfortunately, are, the way life is, we just don't tweet, treat people the way we should be treating people. Uh, I think that's the problem. If, if you get caught up in the social media, you're going to get, People who just want to be negative the whole time. I try to stay off of it as much as I can. Uh, it, it's a shame because we as a society, and I'm not trying to be soft or anything. It's just we as a society just don't respect the people like we can. I'm okay to be critical uh, or, or critique somebody, but just to get the way people do it. But that's you know that's part that's part of it. I mean, other sports they do it all the time. You think about the baseball players and football players and basketball players. There's always trash talking. But my question is, the person doing the trash talking, would they do it face-to-face right next to you? I always told my kids, uh, and my wife always said, tweet responsibly. But 
would your grandmother or your mother be proud of something you wrote or said or a picture? Uh, and I think if you kind of follow those guidelines, you'll probably stay out of the hot water. But I, I you know, I think it's just it's just where we are. Uh, you try not to take it personal, but it, it gets personal and it, it does hurt. But I mean, if you give them clicks, then that's they succeed. So I, I try to ignore a lot of that stuff if I can. Uh, but it, it's tougher. I really feel for the players. I tell these young players, these college players, stay off social media when you're playing a tournament. Don't read the positive. Don't read the negative. Just stay off of it. I think you, you, you'll be a lot better, a lot more successful. Keep away that noise. Keep away. We were talking about Justin Thomas being in the struggle. I mean, you know, everybody on Twitter and, and everywhere else is talking about it. I, I think you just got to stay away from it because he's going to be, you know, he's going to get over. He's going to start playing well. Uh, but if you keep watching that, it, it, and all of a sudden you start believing it. And I think that's the problem where we are. So I love that. First of all, that, you know, that, that piece, particularly about would your mother be proud of what you wrote? I think that's perfect. Spot on. So kudos to you and your mom for that one. Jim, on a similar note, we had that other unfortunate news story from the weekend where a player on the Canadian tour actually ended up admitting to cheating by erasing the seven he made on the last hole and writing in a five instead so he could make the cut. When he got questioned, he withdrew immediately from the tournament, later admitted to that cheating on social media. We all do stupid things, but where does he go from here? If, if For that player, where where does that player go from here now? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, it's kind of like Tom said, once you've done that, you, you, I guess you've cheated. You're kind of known as a cheater and you really, you know, you would try to forgive and forget. But I mean, that was a big, that was a blatant, just by listening. And I hadn't really heard the story until today. And just, I mean, that's a massive, that's big time cheating. I mean, it's not like, oh, I made a mistake and did this, but you basically, you know, you cheated. That's all there is to it. Now, I, I remember as a kid, playing uh and i might have been i don't know 12 13 years old and i remember i whiffed one under a tree and i saw that didn't count in a tournament and i remember that feeling that i had that that i said no i made a four when i really made a five that feeling i had at first you know somebody called me out during the i guess right away got on the green that feeling i had was so awful that i never wanted to have that feeling again i never did and that was at a young age so i was able to kind of learn that uh, if anything, I called penalties on myself. Now I'm no angel by any means, you know, on anything, but I just think, man, the game's about integrity. Uh, and, and that took it to a level that it's just such a, a tough deal. Uh, I hate that he did it. I know he regrets it, but you know, it affects so many people. I think that's the, that's the problem. That's the issue. And, and we still got to keep the integrity of our game. Uh, and, and I hope we can. And, and that was just a tough scenario. Uh, I don't know where he goes from here. Uh, obviously, a, a lesson, but he's always going to be marked. And I think that's just a terrible thing to have to go through the rest of your life with. One of your peers on the Golf Channel, Brandel Chambly, said of Rory that he doesn't have as much runway in front of him as he did when he won his last major. And I get that his last major win was nine years ago. So technically, that's true because nine years have gone by. But the conditioning that players are in, like Rory, Rory's in fantastic shape. And the fact that Phil won a major at almost 51 years old, I think there shouldn't be any panic around Rory or from Rory because I think he has more runway in front of him than he does behind him with regards to the ability and the time to win majors. I don't know. What do you think? Because I think he's got more runway in front of him than he does behind him. But I don't know. What do you think? I, I think so. Uh... That's a tough one because every week he goes, 
they're asking, you haven't won one in nine years. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. He's still in contention. I, hey, I don't want a major. I'd have had the answer. I didn't win a major. I finished, you know, in my career, I finished second nine times. I won five times, but I finished second nine times. I finished third nine times. So I was close. Uh, and it starts to wear on you. I, I remember when I, last time I won was 95 at Memphis. And you go to that period of time like he has, you wonder, am I ever going to win a major? Sure, he's winning tournaments. He's not, you know, playing horrible. But it's tougher and tougher. I think there's so many great players now, and you've lost that one guy that was winning most of them. That was Tiger Woods. And that guy's gone, you know, as far as competing in the majors uh, like he was. Uh, I just think there's so many great players. I think when you look back at these college players that are coming out now, even a Brian Harmon, he had only won twice and he wins the Open. Uh, but you look at these college players, they're so much better prepared. You know, they're on the Golf Channel. We're videoing them. We're, we're, we're watching them play. We're interviewing them. Uh, they're playing in tour events. They're so much more seasoned than we were when we first came out. So I just think there's so many more players that he has to beat. But the number one player he's got to beat and try to get over is himself. And I think sometimes that's the toughest guy to beat is, is allowing yourself that freedom to play free, not think about, hey, I haven't won in nine years. I mean, that, that's easier for me to sit back and say, but it is so much fun to watch him play when he's in contention. Uh, it really is. But the longer you go, the more that doubt all of a sudden kind of seeps in there and goes, am I ever going to win one again? I might win a tournament, but am I ever going to win a major again? I think that's that's the toughest part. Jim, you referenced the LPGA earlier, and over on the women's side, they've held two of their majors this year at Baltusrol and Pebble Beach. How big is it for the LPGA Tour to have their events now being held on historically iconic courses like those? Oh, I think it's phenomenal. I talked to Missy Kay, who's the coach at Arizona State. She coached Lynn Grant, who just won at Toledo. Uh, incredible players, won five times on the LAT. Will compete, be very competitive at the Evian and we'll win some tournaments, uh, a lot of tournaments. I, I think for them to be able to play that, I, I think it's the venue means so much. Uh, and for them to play those iconic events, I think it's fantastic for them. Uh, I, I get to cover those, not as much as I used to, but the t they're so good. Uh, and they're so much fun to watch them. They, they, they play a completely game. Sure. The long hitters have the advantage, but to watch them get to play these great golf courses, it's so good for their tour. Uh, it's so good for the women's game. It's for the young girls who are out there now, 12 or 13, and say, hey, one day I get to play Pebble Beach, or one day I might get to play Baltus Strong. So I think for those young players all over the world, not just in America, all over the world, that dream is basically a reality, and they have a chance to be able to do that. So I think going forward, I think it was a great thing. I thought they brought all the past champions they could to come back in. It just, I think it's so important for these young players, both on the men's and women's side, to understand the history of the game and understand who stepped the way, who paved the way for players like myself, Jack Nicholas, the Arnold Palmers, you know, all these guys like that, the Ben Hogan's, the Byron Nelson's. I mean, this could go on and on and on. Those guys, the Tom Watson's, the Raymond Floyd's. I mean, those are the guys that opened the doors for us. Uh, and, and, and there'd be people in my era would say that. You know, they opened the door for the current players. Tiger Woods opened it up for the world. Uh, but for the ladies game, I think it's just such a great thing. And it was so much fun. Allison Corpus, uh, was about the same age as my third daughter, my wife, Sissy, uh, got to watch her play a lot as a junior player. I was so proud of her. She's such a great young lady. I got to see her at Toledo. She kept, uh, you know, she committed to playing. She played. 
and competed, had a chance to win. But I, I think it's so so great to to see these young players get this opportunity to play the great courses like she did. Jim, one more before I let you go. And like I mentioned in your intro, you're in two state Hall of Fames now. Not bad, my friend. What's it like <laughs> to have Hall of Famer as part of your intros now? Well, I'm married to a Hall of Famer, so that makes it even better. I knew my wife was always Hall of Fame, but now she's officially Hall of Fame. You know, it's a great honor. I don't think any of us ever played the game. I played it because I loved it. Uh, it just, it's so cool to be able to say that I've been in, like you said, in, in those, in those Hall of Fames. And I know when I got into the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame and Sissy had already gone in and to watch my family sit there and think about, you know, when they were little, I was traveling a bunch and, 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 and to share that with them. And, and my mom and dad, you know, they're still living, but they weren't able to come. But just to know all the things they sacrificed, the hard work they put in to give me that opportunity. It was just a great honor and to go in with so many great athletes. I mean, these are the athletes. These are the great athletes of Mississippi, not just the golfers. Uh, and I think that's the coolest reward. And like I said, I'd have never dreamed as a kid growing up in Indiana, but living in Mississippi over half my life that I'd ever be in any kind of Hall of Fame. Uh, but it's just an incredible honor. Uh, and it teased me a lot because I've gotten in a few Hall of Fames, but you know, each one is special. But that one was really great because I was able to raise my family here and live here. And it's, a, it's really a great place uh, amongst some incredible athletes of our state. Jim, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's somewhere on social media? Well, I do a podcast called Only One Shot Golf. I've been not so much lazy, but I haven't been doing that as much as I have been in the past. I get the college players, I get ex-pros, and we talk about what makes an elite player elite. I get a lot of the coaches come on there and talk about what they're looking for in players and, and things like that. Uh, on Twitter at Gallagher, J-R-G-C. My, my Instagram account is... Uh, Personal, but I have the only one shot golf uh, Instagram account. So I, it's it just, uh, if you want to listen to a kind of a fun podcast, I've had some great guests. Uh, I had Barbara Nicholas on there. I've had Archie Manning and several of the coaches and great pleasure. Been doing it for about two or three years. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, so if you want to have a, a cool podcast to listen to, it's only one shot golf and, and then check it out. Jim, it's always a privilege getting have, getting to have you as part of the show. I can't thank you enough for coming back. This is your third visit on the show. You've become a a wonderful friend and somebody that is quietly mentoring me as I listen to you doing the broadcast, whether it's on, on the golf channel or anywhere else. You're fantastic, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for all you do and promoting our great game and uh, just being one of the class acts uh, in this business and have me on anytime. I'll be happy to talk and chat. So it's nice to be, uh, be with you tonight. I appreciate that very much, Jim. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. Thanks. See you, Jim. That is the great Jim Gallagher Jr. What a tremendous player and an even better guy. So richly deserving being in those Hall of Fames. Again, make sure you follow him on Twitter at Gallagher JRGC. Only One Shot Golf is a great podcast. Make sure you, you put that on your list of things to listen to all the time. And uh, like I say, this is the third time Jim has been a part of the show. He's a, a, a great guy and um, he has just meant a lot to me. Uh, as I've listened to him and had him as part of the show, he always makes the segment so much fun to be a part of. And then listening to how he goes about his business on the Golf Channel and, and on that podcast, it's just fantastic. That is somebody that I am very proud to emulate and learn from, and I'll continue to do it. And like I say, hopefully we get the privilege of having Jim back on the show very, very soon. Okay, coming up next is going to be Lisa O'Hurley, who was a great player in high school and college. He went to Baylor. 
She's now the founder and CEO of Lola Sport, which is a fantastic ladies' apparel brand. Before I get to Lisa, I want to remind you about Two Under, men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R dot com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scone.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's scone.com, S-K-O-N-I dot com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Okay, now making her next on the tee debut with me is Lisa O'Hurley. Let me give you some background on Lisa. She played her college golf at Baylor University, where she helped them win the 1992 Holiday Hills Classic, plus the 1993 Collegiate Golf Classic and the Memphis Intercollegiate Tournament. She graduated with her degree in education, English, and French. She, like our good friend Keith Hirschland, was one of the original staff members at the Golf Channel in 1995. She was the director of marketing, then the director of tour relations, followed by director of golf sponsorships there. She then moved over to become the senior vice president of sales and marketing at Golfino USA. Followed by a role as VP of business development at Garmony Golf, she is now the founder and CEO of her own apparel company called Lola Sport. If her married last name of O'Hurley sounds familiar to you and you're a Seinfeld fan like I am, her husband John O'Hurley is the actor who played Jay Peterman. And I couldn't be more excited to have Lisa here with me tonight on Next on the T. Hey, Lisa, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Chris. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Lisa, I want to go back to the beginning of when you started playing golf, because I read that former PGA Tour pro Billy Ray Brown was who you took <laughs> lessons from. How'd you get started with him? You know, that's true. So I grew up, Chris, in a, in a, in a golf and country club family. My dad, um, ever since I was born, has been a general manager of country clubs. My mom was a merchandise buyer, and I think we um, we circumnavigated the United States uh, with different club jobs, etc. And when we were in uh, we were in Houston, right as I was going into high school, and uh, the club that my dad was the general manager at, Billy Ray Brown worked there, um, and he was kind of an assistant pro under a pro named Bill Hill. And uh, that was Quail Valley uh, Country Club outside of Sugarland, Texas. And so when I all of a sudden got interested in golf, finally, my dad was thrilled. 
finally, I got interested and I took my first lessons from Billy Ray Brown. And I will tell you, I still use the exact putting grip that he gave me. There you go. And it's so fun to see him now whenever we're at tournaments. If John, my husband and I are out at uh, events and we see him, it's just it's just like old times. Prior to college, you played at Xavier College Prep, which is also where Cheyenne Woods, Grace Park and Arizona State coach Missy Farquet played. Talk about your experience playing there. Yes, that was, um, you know, of all of the golf teams I've played on, that was certainly the most elite at the time. Um, when I was at Xavier, we won our eighth, ninth and 10th national titles, um, which was amazing to be, um, in that circle of, of female golfers. Um, you know, that's where my handicap was the best. I had just started playing golf as a freshman. And by the time I was a junior, I was a one. So they really, they whipped us into shape there at Xavier, I have to say. And our, um, you know, our, our coach, and this is sort of a, I, I think she's sort of golf famous, but our coach is a nun, um, Sister Lynn Windsor, um, who doesn't even own golf clubs herself because she took the oath of poverty, but boy, can she coach. And, um, it was, it was such a great school to be part of and a great team to be on. You played your college golf at Baylor. I'm curious, how did you end up there? I got to imagine Billy Ray Brown had to be pushing you to go <laughs> go to Houston and be a cougar like he was. How did you get out of that and get to Baylor? You know, in in all uh, honesty, my my thought was I really wasn't going to play college golf. Um, I knew that I probably wasn't good enough to go on tour, and um, and I had wanted to go to Baylor anyway. That that is where when I was living in Houston, that's where the vast majority of my friends went. And, um, and I want really wanted to get back to Texas. So I went to Baylor, not really thinking much about golf. And it was, uh, one night during my freshman year when I was sitting in the dorm and I got a knock on the door saying, we're starting a golf team and we hear you play golf. And, um, and it just so happened. I also went to Baylor with my best friend from Phoenix and she was on the golf team too. So she and I hopped over to the Baylor golf team and that's, that's where we started. So our Baylor team wasn't, um, wasn't quite as prestigious as our high school team at the time. But what's fun now is I'm still really close to the team and um, to the coach there, Jay Goble. He's such a great guy and I love what he's done with the program. And when they come out here to Los Angeles to play in their event at Palos Verdes, I always go and play a practice round with them. And I'm astounded by uh, how much better they are than me. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> well, to your point, you you got to be there at the startup of the women's program, and you guys won some tournaments. What are some of your favorite memories from your time playing the college golf there at Baylor? You know, I have to say, um, you know, we did we did participate in tournaments, and we won a couple. But really, it was um, what I loved about that was it was a little different than high school golf. It was, um, you know, we were all on our own by then. We were independent, and so we were choosing more to be on this team. Um, then, you know, then how you feel about it in high school, maybe. Um, and I met some great friends. In fact, um, uh, one of my really good friends, her husband now is the director of golf at Austin country club. So even when we're at the PGA show and I'm selling merchandise, I get to run into her and, and it's nice to see, um, it's nice to see people that, that I met during my college years, but, but all in all, truly, I felt like I was probably my best player in high school. So you go from helping to start up the women's golf team there at Baylor 
to helping start up the Golf Channel in 1995. Talk about getting that opportunity. Yeah, oh boy, was that a, was that a life changing opportunity for me? Um, so in 1994, early on, I was living in Waco, Texas, of course, at Baylor, and picked up an a uh, Dallas Morning News that was at my doorstep. Back then, we read the paper. And on the cover of the sports section was talk of a golf network. And even though it was not my degree at all, communications was not my thing. Broadcasting was not my thing. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And that certainly sounds fun. And, you know, the golf world is pretty small, Chris, when you, when you think about it. And I put, I put some feelers out there, um, of some of my more prestigious golf partners, I think. Um, at the time, and certainly, and uh, you know, it, it, I didn't have to go far before I found somebody who was linked with the Golf Channel, and um, I sent my resume in along with, you know, I think three million other people, and my resume was pretty short and sweet at the time. It, you know, there wasn't a lot to it, but I was, um, I was willing to work, and I had a lot of people who, um, you know, could give me great recommendations just in terms of my person. And certainly I went to Orlando and, um, and I, you know, they interviewed me. And at the end of the interview, they sort of said, well, we like you. What do you think you could do here? <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's a great question. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, so my first job there, they put me in affiliate sales because at that point, if you recall, the golf channel was a pay service. So you had to pay $6.95 a month to get the golf channel. It was similar sort of to HBO at the time. And so we had to go distribute the network to the cable companies and then also sell it in on the local level so that people would want to pay $6.95 a month. So that was kind of my job. So I was in affiliate sales and marketing for the first five years. And I ended up in total having three very distinct jobs there. And I was there for over 10 years. So I love that you mentioned Keith Hirschland because, you know, all of us who were there early on, it is, it is truly a family. I think I was employee number 27. And I was, it was two more years before they hired somebody younger than me. So we were, um, we were, we were thick. We were thick as thieves back then. And it was, it was really a great, uh, a super good experience. And I was able to see, um, a startup company from the ground floor. And, and back then we were doing everything. I mean, if, if I was in Orlando at the time and, you know, the cameraman was sick, I was holding a camera. I mean, it was, it was really all hands on deck and, and it gave me a great um, optic of what a startup looked like. So I have to imagine during that time, you had an opportunity to not only get close with the other employees there, but get close with Mr. Palmer. I have to imagine with his name and his stamp on this thing, he's around a bunch. What was it like getting to spend time around Mr. Palmer? Yeah, oh, it was it was as fantastic as you can imagine. Um, he was around quite a bit. And. He and I uh, formed a really great friendship. Um, I think something had to do with it that I was one of the few, oddly, I was one of the few golfers at the Golf Channel. There were a lot of people who were in the cable business that didn't really play golf. And so when he would come to Los Angeles or when I was out there, um, oftentimes we would play golf or we'd go to the range at Bay Hill and just chit chat and hit balls. And, and it was just, I mean, it was surreal is what it was. And I, you know, I knew him for years and years and years, and he introduced me to some great people and really took me under his wing. And, um, I'm, I'm so appreciative of, um, the, the kind of person that he was and how he, you know, how he 
helped me along and and gave me all sorts of confidence and um and you know he was just he was just a fun person and I just really enjoyed him. So speaking of confidence and fast forwarding a few years, now you're the founder and CEO of your own apparel brand. Where did the idea for Lolo Sport come from? Well, um, that is true. I am. Uh, I did uh, start a, a ladies golf clothing company during COVID of all times. Um, I had been in the business uh, for a few years. So way back when my husband and I started playing in the Dunhill Links, um, which uh, for golfers who know is sort of like the AT&T Pebble Beach of the European tour, um, where you go out and play, you know, St. Andrews, Carnoustie, Kings Barnes. And, and to me, I will still say it's the best tournament in the world. Um, and we were very fortunate to get to go over there and play. And while I was over there, I happened upon the Golfino store, which was in the old course hotel that at the time was a very, very large, um, European clothing brand for men and ladies. And I just fell in love with it. And so it wasn't too long after that, that I flew to Germany to meet with the owners of Golfino about starting their, their business in America, which I did do. Um, and I ran that business in America for seven years until COVID struck and COVID did not fare well for Golfino. Unfortunately, they had a lot of freestanding stores that had to close, of course. And, um, and the company ended up selling. And so, um, it didn't prove well for us here in America. And we had, you know, worked seven years. I had a great sales team. I had a great customers, which were all, you know, your best resorts and country clubs in the United States. And rather than just, you know, fold it up and say, well, that was fun. I decided to create a, you know, similar styles, you know, high end ladies golf clothing company to kind of fill the shelf space of what Golfino left behind. And so it wasn't something I had been dreaming about for years, but it was almost more of a, um, a necessity at the time, um, because, you know, there were other premium ladies golf clothing companies that were, that were kind of floundering during COVID. And this was a time when you could go in and sort of get that business. So let's take that a step further. Cause to your point, during the pandemic, most of the companies, so many companies went out of business, but the golf industry got a boom because one thing that we could do was get outdoors and go play golf. So this seemed like in, in a time when other businesses were having a really tough time, you come along with a great brand. Golf is, is now booming. Boy, it just seemed like perfect timing. It, it really was perfect timing. I mean, I had, I had everything sort of lined up for me and it was, you know, I'd say it's, it was a God given thing, but, um, you know, I had, a, as I say, I had a great sales team. I had great people around me. I had learned a lot from Golfino. And, um, and I was kind of able to put it all together, um, put the pieces together to launch a clothing brand. What I was not able to do at the time, however, due to COVID was make samples. And so what we did was we used, you know, sketches of our designs and we went to our best customers of Golfino and sort of told them what we were up to and said, you know, this is what it's going to look like. I can't show it to you now, but this is what it's going to look like during production. And if you trust us, we would really appreciate you ordering Lola Sport. And sure enough, we asked 90 accounts to do that and 72 of them ordered. And that's how we got started. So to that end, that speaks to me. It tells me that the relationships that you build, and you mentioned the word trust, that you've built up so many great relationships and so much trust in the folks that you're interacting with that a product in sort of sight unseen 
that they would go ahead and make those orders. That's tremendous. It is tremendous, actually. And, um, and you know, the trust goes both ways, too, because, um, you know, we went to we went to the accounts that um, that we sort of felt, you know, could take a high end product and could could move it through their membership and and really foster our brand. And um, and I think it's been great. And and still to this day, those those early on accounts, I would I would do anything for them. So let's change gears just a little bit because I love your website. And and one of the things that I love about your website is when you go on to lolasport.com, a window comes up to join your email list and it says, hi, you're next on the T. That's <laughs> fantastic. I love that. Well, isn't that, those are some of the best words in golf, aren't they? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's awesome. So I got to ask you, it's not bad when arguably the greatest player of all time in women's golf is wearing your brand. Talk about your relationship with Annika Sorenstam. She was also very close to him. And um, and in many retrospects, not only through golf, but you know, her son, Will, was treated for a long time at the Winnie Palmer Hospital when he was born. And they had a very close relationship. And I, I met Annika initially through him. And then, um, and then, you know, we kind of became, um, sort of, um, socially friends because she would show up at some of the same tournaments that John and I would. And they both play in the American Century, um, championship in Lake Tahoe, which has just occurred. And so I got to spend a lot of time with her and, and I just really like her. I like her as a person. She represents everything that I would want in a friend, much less as a business colleague. I mean, I, for, I, I mean, it's, it's so nice to admire what she has done in the golf world. I mean, she's won 90 times. I can't even, I can't even imagine that. Um, but also just how she has, um, carried herself, how she supports junior golf. I love the fact that she retired at, at her height to be able to focus on her family and have a husband and kids. And, and now she's getting back into competitive golf a bit more and, and more of sort of an ambassador for the game. And I think, um, I think she's just a wonderful person. And to have her wearing our clothes every day, I just pinch myself. So now I want to talk about some of the collections you have, particularly the new James Bond inspired <laughs> 007 collection. Talk about that. Well, you know, Chris, if you can't have fun, why do it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, we may, we may have some kind of goofy things out there. Like for instance, we have a shirt, you know, given that our name is Lola, we have a shirt. Um, that's sort of Barry Manilow-esque about, um, you know, Lola the showgirl. Right. Um, so I love that too, but you know, we got to have a few fun things. Um, you know, I've always been a huge James Bond fan. And when you're, when you're a Bond fan, you're also sort of, you know, aligned with the Bond girls. And I used to like love to see what they were wearing in the sort of fashion. And even if you watch them now, even the older ones, like the fashion still holds. It's, I mean, their clothes are really cool. But I liked them because they were kind of sleek and and sort of understated, but yet very alluring. And so for this particular fall collection that we've made, which we've just launched our first uh, collection of of the whole. But, um, you know, I wanted it to be kind of James Bond themed, um, sort of like, you know, you're going to go play golf and look great, maybe have dinner and then maybe, you know, run from assassins at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> The news release says that you came up with the idea for the collection in tribute to the rounds of golf you played with Sean Connery. I <laughs> like playing golf with Sean Connery. It was pretty good. I got to say, um, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, I didn't, you know, I didn't get to play a lot of golf with Sean Connery, but on the, on the few rounds that I did play with him, 
Um, it was pretty spectacular. He and I had a mutual friend here in Los Angeles. And, um, and you know, when the first opportunity came around where Lisa, do you want to come play with me and Sean Connery? Of course, I, I jumped on it. And, um, uh, you know, he was, he was such a great guy and so funny. He was really funny and I loved it. I just loved being around him. And I thought he was so dashing and dapper. I mean, just as you would imagine. Um, but really, you know, he would say some funny things and he would sort of rib me, which I like that too. I like people who give me the business. So, um, you know, I, I, I have always been inspired by him. There's a few, you know, a few people that you play golf with in your life that leave a lasting mark. And he was definitely one. So, um, so this was a nice tie in together. You also have golf fitness pull on pants and the very pants inspired by your husband's character, Jay Peterman on Seinfeld. Let our listeners know about those. Okay. So, um, first of all, the very pant is certainly our best seller. Um, it's, it's a extremely stretchable pant that is, you know, it's an actual pant though. Like you pull it up, it has a button and a zipper, <laughs> which is, you know, hard to find in today's day. Um, but it's, and it's got two backpack pockets, sort of like a jean cut. Um, and it comes in numerous colors. That's the best part about the very pant is that most people who like it will buy it in several, several colors just to have, you know, one for everything that they, every top that they have in their wardrobe. But, um, so my, as you say, my husband played Jay Peterman on Seinfeld. And one of our favorite lines that we use a lot here in the house has to do with this term, the very pant, because at one point, I don't remember what Peterman was doing exactly, but he said, oh, it's the very pant that I climbed the Himalayas in or something to that effect. And so to me, it indicated it was something very special that you would remember what you were doing when you wore it. And so when we were looking for a name of what we thought was going to be the best-selling pant, it is now the very pant. And as I use it in our marketing, I say stuff like, you know, it's the very pant I won the club championship in. It's the very pant I broke 70 in. It's the very pant I played in the member guest in, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what it's called, very pant. Now, the golf fitness pull-on pant, that is one of my personal favorites. That's sort of, um, you know, one thing that gets me as a female golfer is um, I, I, I'm not really keen on women trying to wear things that are too casual to the golf course or at least casual but not appropriate. And this one item kind of fits the bill on both marks. It is very, very casual and comfortable as it is a pull-on pant. Um, and does have some tummy tuck, which is nice for the ladies. Um, the pant goes all the way to your ankles. So it doesn't leave any of that sort of yoga pant, um, calf area hanging out. And, um, and it's, and it's doubly thick. So, um, it has, it has a good structure to it, but the, the kicker is that it has back pockets to make it country club appropriate. So literally I have to try almost every day to not wear this pant because it's so comfortable, but that's the golf fitness pull on pant. So. Um, one, you know, one thing that's great about Lola Sport where it is, it is difficult to make pants for ladies. We have got two really great pants in those two. The rumor has it that the next Bond movie is going to be in 2024, 2025. Might the next Bond girl be wearing something from your apparel line? Oh my gosh. Wouldn't that be cool? Chris, yes. chills. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it. Now I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. 
Lisa, just a couple more before I let you go. And going back to your husband's Jay Peterman character, uh, as I say, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan, as are tens of millions of other people. Can you guys go anywhere without someone saying something Jay Peterman related? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we hear a lot of Elaine. Elaine, you know, um, <laughs> you know, that character has been so great. And it really has taken um, <laughs> it's taken shape in, in different ways. You know, for a long time, John owned part of the J. Peterman company with John Peterman. And so life imitated art in in some ways. But, um, you know, especially in New York City, when we're going when we're walking down the streets in New York City, there is not uh, a block that we go down. And it, it tends to be a lot of New York uh, cops. They love Peterman. And so they <laughs> tend to yell out for Peterman, which is which is really fun. And we do, you know, John was also the first winner on Dancing with the Stars. So depending on, you know, the demographic of the lady, we do get a lot of Dancing with the Stars um, fans. Did he get to keep the JFK golf clubs from the show? <laughs> um, no. No? But, you know, he, it's funny because he... Uh, um, he really is a collector of old golf clubs anyway. And so when I met him, he had this really cool area in his living room with all these, um, you know, old authentic golf clubs. So it is kind of fun. So we we do refer to them as the JFKs. But in truth, no, he didn't get to keep the ones from the show. That's disappointing. <laughs> I know. Lisa, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on your website and on social media as well? Oh, thanks so much, Chris. So the name of our company is Lola Sport. It's L-O-H-L-A-S-P-O-R-T. It's actually Lisa O'Hurley, L-A-S-P-O-R-T dot com. And we are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. And that's also our URL website is lolasport.com. Lisa, it's been fantastic getting to spend some time with you. I, I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show. You made the segment so much fun to be a part of. Oh, thank you so much, Chris, for having me and for having me in good company with all these other elite guests. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care, Lisa. All the best in your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. You too. See you, Lisa. That is Lisa O'Hurley, folks. Her apparel line, her apparel line again is Lola, L-O-H-L-A Sport. And like I say, she said uh, it's, the L-O-H is Lisa O'Hurley and L-A is where they're located. So there you go. Put all that together. And that's the website. And she, like her brand, as you heard, so much fun. It's it's no wonder why Annika partnered with her. She is adding incredible style to the women's golf game. They absolutely should be in the next Bond movie. So I hope that really comes to pass. And if they're not, the Bond movies are doing themselves a disservice. Give her a follow on Twitter. And whether it's Twitter or X, I can never keep that straight now. Either way, you can follow her at Lisa O'Hurley. And again, lolasport.com is the website and like i said earlier what i love about her site is when you go on there the first thing that happens a window pops up to join the email list and it says you're next on the t how great is that folks she's spectacular hopefully like i say we get to have her back on the show again real soon okay now back and next on the t with me is another one of the top instructors in our game and that's shane lebaron let me remind you about shane's background he's from lincoln nebraska Played his college golf at Oklahoma State and then Methodist College in Fayetteville, North Carolina. After college, he played out on the mini tours before deciding that teaching the game is where his heart is really at. He became the assistant golf professional at Blue Hills Country Club in Kansas City in 1998, where he learned under Hall of Fame instructor Stan Thirsk. From there, he moved on to become 
the lead instructor at Shadow Glen Golf Club in Kansas. In 2002, he moved over to Hilton Head, South Carolina, where he worked as an instructor at both Moss Creek and Belfair Golf Club. He later opened his own golf school at Old South Golf Club in Bluffton, South Carolina. He became the college golf coach at the University of South Carolina, Beaufort, in 2008. In 2012, he became the director of instruction at the Plain Truth Performance Center at Wigwam Resort in Phoenix, Arizona. Shane is a Level 3 Plain Truth certified instructor. He's been nominated by Golf Magazine as one of the top 100 instructors in our game. Golf Digest voted him the best teacher in the state of Arizona in 2013. He's on the Callaway Golf Master Staff, and he is now the first director of instruction at Cherry Hills Golf Club in Cherry Valley, Colorado. And I couldn't be more honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Shane, thanks for coming back on the show. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Shane, it's been a minute since we got to have you as part of the show. Catch us up. What's going on with you? Well, let's see. Uh... Tremendous amount of golf instruction. It's that time of year. It's uh, it's sort of a nonstop deal. Cherry Hills, it's been a busy, exciting year. Uh, as you know, we've got the USAM coming up here in just yeah. a couple of weeks. So Yeah, so what's that like? What's it like for you trying to prepare for an event like that? Well, fortunately, uh, as, as being just the instructor, I, I don't have to deal with uh, all the all the stuff that's going on there. And it is, it is, it's, it's, there's so many moving parts. It's unbelievable. Watching the professional staff do what they do to manage this has been really cool to see. Um, but they keep me out of it because that's a little over my head. They just keep me on the range giving golf lessons and we'll call it good. <laughs> so Shane, most golf historians think of Arnold Palmer when you mention Cherry Hills because of his great comeback win in the 1960 U.S. Open. But you know, you talk about the amateur being there now. I mean, Andy North won a U.S. Open there. Phil Mickelson won an amateur there. Jack Nicholas won a U.S. Senior Open there. Talk about the rich history of Cherry Hills. It's it's truly incredible. Um, you know, when I first got here, I I couldn't imagine a golf club in the state of Colorado being a hundred years old. Uh, you know, having spent time on the East Coast and in Chicago and in that area, I, I can see that, but I had no idea, right? Everyone was, and I was aware of Cherry Hills, don't get me wrong, but when you get there and, and, and you're on property and, you know, we've got, there's a beautiful plaque on number one that talks about how Palmer drove the green, started the, you know, started the run right when he won the U.S. Open and uh, Palmer designed our par three course, which is really pretty cool. And uh, during the AM, that'll be turned into basically the, you know, Denver's largest short game area for those guys. Um, but it's 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 really been special. Andy North's come out a couple times and played, so I've gotten to shake his hand. That was pretty neat. Um, and it's uh, it's it's going to provide some good memories, I think, at the USAM this year. You know, it's a, it's the thing about history and and what kind of I, I find unique about Cherry Hills is they have a past, they have history, but they're also building forward, right? So doing things like this USAM is. Is, is setting the tone for future events for this unbelievable facility. So when you're an instructor somewhere and Cherry Hills comes calling or an opportunity to go to a Cherry Hills comes available, what's that like in, in, in thinking about yourself as the guy who's the first director of instruction in the history of Cherry Hills? Uh, it, was, it was an interesting, um, it was very interesting. Um, I was at, 
two clubs. I was at Mirabelle and Scottsdale and Knollwood Club in Lake Forest uh, when the Cherry Hills deal popped up. And, and I was very, very happy, you know, um, great head pros, great staff, great towns, good people, great golf courses. I was very happy. Um, but my wife and I, we've been back and forth for, oh, I don't know, 12 years, 13 years, maybe longer, you know, six and six wintertime here, some, you know, summer somewhere else. And, and, and I loved it and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but, uh, as I've gotten older, it's harder to go back and forth. And the Cherry Hills opportunity came up and it gave us a chance to just have one home and not have to go back and forth. And, and, um, so I, I was very fortunate that, um, that I, that I got a phone call and, and, and we had some great conversations and they decided to pick me to, to, to be there. And, and it's, it's, it's been a fun ride. It really has been. Dane, switching gears a little bit. Want to get your thoughts on what we saw this past week at the open championship. Brian Harmon goes out and dominates that field. He really never let anyone back in the tournament over the weekend. What'd you think about his performance? It was stellar. Um, it's 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 one of the best performances I've seen in a major in a very long time. Um, I think I saw must have been on Golf Digest. I think they posted it on Instagram. But the kid Brian Harmon made fifty eight out of fifty nine putts within ten feet on the week. Right. And and most of us, even good players, you know. Just go to the practice green and try to do that. It's not happening. Uh, he putted phenomenal, and it was it was fun to see that. Um, it's not he's not a short hitter by any stretch, but but he's, you know, he's not Brooks Kepka, he's not Dustin Johnson, that sort of thing, right? And uh, to see him go out there and, and really manage his game to the, I mean, he had it dialed in. Uh, his yardages looked like he was hitting his numbers. He looked very comfortable in what he was doing. He handled himself. I mean, he, he played like a champion from, from, from the first tee shot to the last putt was old. He was fantastic to watch. So let's take that a step further, Shane, because mm-hmm. to your point, he's not a, he's not a bomber out there to, to your point of Brooks Kepler, right. Dustin Johnson or any of those guys, but his short game is pretty darn solid. And to, and to your further point, he made everything he looked at from 10 feet and in almost right. Talk about for, for those of us that aren't big in stature how important short game is in developing that part of our game so that it makes up for the fact that we're not the longest hitter. But I, I think it's insanely important. The, um, the amount of strokes that you can pick up around the green. I mean, how many rounds have we all had where you look back and even if you played well, you're like, Oh, I missed a four footer and I didn't get up and down on six. And, and you all, you look back and it could have been three or four shots lower. Right. And short game is sort of the key key to doing that. But, the truth of the matter is what most people need to hear in my opinion is taking ownership of your game. So when you've got a kid like Brian Harmon and we, we all know he's not quite hitting it as far as Dustin Johnson, of course, not many of us are right. What he's done is he's managed his game. He's, he's doing what he does to the best of his ability. And, and most of us, as it relates to golf, we're so busy. Uh, trying to do things that we think we can't do that we never fully evolve the things that we're capable of. So we never actually maximize where we are. We're so busy looking for the things we don't have. And 
that's sort of a myth from a standpoint as it relates to a lot of players. Uh, you know, some guys are going to putt it better than others. Some players hit it longer than others. Some players iron it better. But you still have to go out and play the game. And when you play golf relative to you, it, the way you play, and you own that, and you don't, you might be playing with an opponent, and gosh, this 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 golfer just bombs it out there, and he's hitting par fives and two, and I can't do that. Well, it doesn't mean you can't win. You just need to wedge it a little bit better. You need to be a little more strategic on the golf course and kind of own what you do. But when you start looking for that, uh, you know, all all the stuff that you don't have, eventually you sort of wind up kind of like a hamster in a wheel. You you try and you try and you try, but you're really not getting any better because you've never maximized what you had to begin with. And I think watching Brian Harmon play was a player that is absolutely maximizing his game to the best of his ability. And he and he, he took it to the British Open and obviously had incredible success. And most golfers could learn a ton from just re-watching that and seeing how he manages himself and maximizes his game on that golf course. I think that's perfectly said, Shane, because it feels like in today's golf, for, for amateurs like me, right, weekend warriors, we're out there chasing distance. I mean, I'm five foot eight, 175 pounds. I mean, I get that, that Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler are probably somewhere in the same stature as I, but their club head speed is something I'll never have, and they're out there bombing it. But because we're out there chasing distance all the time, we're trying new drivers, we're out on the driving range trying to hit it as far as we possibly can. You look a little to your left, there's nobody in the short game area and certainly nobody on the putting green. Maximizing what we can do seems like a better um, use of our time, better use of our practice time than out there trying to figure out how we can swing out of our shoes and gain another five or 10 yards with our drivers. Am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely correct. And look, who doesn't want an extra five or 10, right? I, I, I get it. Um, but sometimes the price you pay for that, you might be a hitter, you know, that's, that's hitting fairways, right, Chris? And, right. and you, you, you might get that extra five or 10, but occasionally, you know, admission's never free. So all of a sudden you get 10 more yards, but now maybe you're a little more crooked. Now maybe you're, you're behind more trees, you're hitting more fairway bunkers. And so it's not really adjusting your score as much, right? Um, right? And versus, again, maximizing where you were to begin with. And if along the way, you know, you start to hit it a little bit better and you gain a little more confidence, and it's funny how confidence allows you to swing a little faster. And next thing you know, the ball's just sort of naturally going a little bit longer because you sort of have a little pep in your step, right? That's right. And and there's there's nothing wrong with that road. It's it's funny as I watch these players, um, even the tour guys looking for extra distance. And, and I'm certainly not a doctor by any stretch, but, uh, the injuries, the way that they're building their bodies to, to do this and withstand that there, there is a level of punishment that's gone on with it. And, you know, you see Bryson sort of morphing himself from, you know, Bryson to this big Bryson. And now he's back to little Bryson again, if you will. <laughs> and um, uh, Tiger Woods and, and his dramatic change in his body, you know, he basically changed his entire body type. And and you look at these players with the injuries, you know, Brooks Kepka kind of went through some of that. Um, I sort of look at 
Dustin Johnson, who's an absolute athletic freak. Uh, and then look at John Daly. John Daly's never been hurt. And, you know, he, he's always hit it long, but, but he's never been hurt. And he never actually went looking for distance. The guy just had it, right? Right. But I, I watched these players go and try to, try to grab it. And they, they do these extra workouts and start building up on, on different variety of things in the golf swing to increase that speed. But I wonder how much of that is shortening careers. Um, Good point. I wonder how much of that really is, is hurting them. But at the same time, Chris, you know, if someone said, you know, hey, Shane and Chris, you know, we're going to build you up and you're going to be strong and bold and you're going to hit it long and win two majors and 10 tour events. And, but after that, your career is over. Is that okay? Sign me up. Yeah, right. I'm shaking my <laughs> head. Yeah, I'll take that all day. Right. Right. You know, but uh, you know, you look at Sam Snead and Phil Mickelson, and and uh, and these guys have played, you know, well into their career, very well. Tom Watson, another one. Right. And um, so it's kind of it's it's fun to watch, and and I don't blame the guys that do it. I I get it. You know, we'd 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 all we'd all buy tickets for that ride. You did a video about putting where you talk about how amateur golfers like me can step up to a five-foot putt and make it to save par, but if that five-footer was for birdie, we usually miss. And you say it's because we're not used to making birdies. We're more used to going out there trying to save par. Why is it different? Expectation level. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Most golfers, if you ask them, right, let's say the average golfer makes, I don't know, five pars around okay and you ask them how many birdies they make well it's i don't know it's one maybe zero right right and so when they have that opportunity to make that birdie putt their level of importance in that putt now increases tenfold so they're not just hitting the same putt that you know they usually make five or six of those for par no big deal now they have the same length for birdie but it's for birdie so it takes on a whole new different meaning right yeah and, and it's, it's hard for them to, to knock that down because of the stress they put on themselves. It's a new situation for them, right? If they were making, you know, four or five birdies around, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. But because it's such a rare opportunity, you, you put that extra level of stress on yourself. Oh, I got to make it. It's a birdie. I got to do it. You know, usually they're thinking about a hole that's coming up that they know they're going to bogey because it's tough. <laughs> so right. they're trying to get one ahead, right? Put one in right. the bank a little bit. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough for them. Shane, I love your teaching philosophy. You talk about how golf is a, a one of a kind game played by unique individuals. Thus, I teach the person, not the swing preference. Talk about what you mean by that. So, my mentor is Jim Hardy. And, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't be anywhere in my career without that great man. And, uh, and there are many others that he's mentored that have gone on to do amazing things, some of which have been on your show also. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, Chris, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm very much kind of insanely dyslexic. No. And so, so I learn very different. And, you know, when I was going through school, I'd, I'd watch kids just kind of, they'd grab onto stuff and I wasn't getting it and couldn't figure out why. And, and some teachers would say things that would make sense to me and others, uh, would say things that not that I thought they were wrong but i didn't hear it it never made sense it never clicked right and 
as I went through becoming an instructor to do what I do, I never wanted to be the instructor that was incapable of taking the player that stands in front of you and making that individual better. And because of Jim Hardy, uh, I've learned how to diagnose uh, and then how to put a player together for them to hit their best, most solid shots, most repetitively. And, you know, the, the truth is, Chris, when, when you look at the, when you look at the PGA Tour and, and, and the, in the Hall of Fame of golf, for that matter, uh, people are led to believe, and this is probably going to sound a little out there to most folks, that, you know, we got we to gotta grip it a certain way and ball position needs to be a certain way. And, you know, this top of the backswing thing is just so vital and we've got to have these, you know, fundamentals. And I would go as far to say um, fundamentals literally don't exist. Golfers have been sold a bill of goods. If you look at the Hall of Fame and the best players that have ever played, or if you just watch golf any Sunday afternoon on TV, these players do not swing alike. They don't grip it alike. They don't aim at the same spots. They don't have the same ball position. They don't have the same finishes. They do not do it the same. But golfers are sort of led to believe that there's this specific chain of events that you need to fall into to be a good player. And that's, that's not the case. The key is, is to figure out, and everyone's done. Everyone's hit their good shots. The key is to figure out what allowed you to do that. See, if you knew what caused it, the odds of you doing that more often would now increase. And well, you'd play better. But the problem is, is most golfers, when they have that good round going, they're so happy and, and pretty much eternally grateful that they're playing well that day, that they're not recognizing what it was that caused them to hit their good shots or hit more fairways or make more putts. They don't know what it is because they're so excited they finally are putting something together. And if you ask them when they're done, well, what'd you do different? The typical response is, I'm not sure. It just worked. And, <laughs> but again, if you knew what caused it, if you kind of knew your swing DNA, how it worked, how it evolved, you know, where your misses are, kind of your pitfalls, and then how do you pull yourself out of there? You become a much, much better player. And that doesn't mean that, you know, your ball position might be forward. It might be more back. You might take it more outside or more inside. You might have a stronger grip. You might have a neutral grip. You might play a draw. You might play a cut. It really doesn't matter as long as you can count on it. You can hit solid shots, and you you know Within reason, obviously, golf's difficult, but within reason, you have a pretty darn good idea what that ball's going to do before you hit it. Gives you confidence. And then you're a much better player because of it. But I think at the end of the day, too many people are, 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 are trying to fit a mold. And, you know, I want to look like Adam Scott. Well, who doesn't? And, um, boy, I, you know, I'd like to put it like Ben Crenshaw, but it, the odds of that happening aren't pretty good. So how, how can I put it the best for me? Right. And, and that's the thing that we're looking for. And so to me, everybody's, everybody's sort of their own little individual set of fundamentals. And, 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 and once they kind of figure out what works for those, their handicaps tend to drop. So I'm a hundred percent behind everything you just said. That all makes complete sense to me, but how do we figure it out? How do we figure out at the end of the round what worked today that didn't work yesterday? So, 
most people, when they have a good round, they're so excited that they're having the good round. Like I said earlier, they don't really know what's causing. And players tend to believe that as they're playing, that they're not thinking. Well, I was just out of my head. I just, I wasn't thinking. I was, I didn't have any swing thoughts. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case, but I, I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, good golf, Chris, is intentional. You're doing it on purpose. What you're doing with your golf swing to cause the ball to do what it does, it's not an accident. You're doing it on purpose. And does that mean you have one or two swing thoughts during a round? Probably. Does it mean you have seven? That's probably too many. But when you figure out and you, you go see a good instructor, um, someone who can really guide you along the way, but when you figure out what allows you to hit your good ones, and then you figure out what your miss is relative to your good ones, then then you're on to something. But I think people are a little afraid to think because truthfully, they spend most of their time thinking about the wrong thing to begin with. <laughs> and and oftentimes the number of lessons I give that people show up and you know it's, I always ask the question, what would you like to achieve today? What can we do? How can I help you? Right? And of course everybody wants to hit it longer and they'd like more consistency, right? Yep. And and so, you know, that's sort of a given, and I certainly don't blame anybody for wanting that who wouldn't. But when you when when I start talking to them about their golf. And I'll say, well, what is it you're currently trying to do or working on? And they're currently hitting poor shots, by the way. Um, and they'll say, well, I'm trying to do this and that. And, and, and they're doing that. And they're literally getting the result they should get based off their operating system, right? Um, you know, you got a player that can't get it in the air and um, he's kind of trapping it, hitting hooks. And can't get a fairway wood in the air, can't get a five iron in the air, you know, kind of wedging it okay. Um, you know, say, well, I'm really trying to come from the inside and stay behind it. And I said, well, you are. And that's, you're literally doing it. And, and you're getting the result you should based off exactly what you're trying to do right now. So in order to fix that, we now have to go this direction to get you out of it. That, that sort of thing. So let's switch gears just a little bit, Shane, because performing under pressure, whether it's a major for a guy out on tour, a lady out on tour, or, or us in our club championship or in our member guest, it's something that a lot of us struggle with. How do you teach your students how to deal with pressure? So <clears throat> pressure is interesting. I just had this conversation with some junior players last week. And first of all, pressure is not unique. Everyone, if, if it's a big event to you, you know, maybe it's someone just playing with their parents. Maybe it's uh, a big state tournament. Maybe it's a tour event. Maybe it's a member guest. It doesn't matter. Either way, it's, it's your green jacket, right? Yep. And, and that puts an element of stress on you. Well, the interesting thing about it that I've discovered over the years, and I, and I believe this to be true, is that you only feel pressure when you're capable. And Everyone's played golf with someone. They've been on the course with somebody who's who's never never really been out before. And you you walk up to a par three and they don't know what to hit. And you say, here, here's seven iron, whack this thing. And and where do I go? Just aim it at the yellow flag and see what happens, right? Well, they hit that shot and it goes on the green and they have this 
complete vanilla look on their face. They go, now what? They go, well, now we putt, but you just hit it on the green. And they go, okay. And you're excited for them and they have nothing. Now they could have just as easily topped it in the water and they're going to have the same response because they don't understand or are aware of what their capability is at that point in time. Now, the reason that you feel the nerves is because that you're capable. The problem that people run into is that nervous feeling that, you know, that thunder in your stomach and all that stuff going on, your heart beating fast. All of that is happening for a reason. The problem is players try to dilute it. They try to calm it down. And it takes so much internal energy during that round that the first four, five, six holes you've played, it's almost like you're watching yourself do things, but you can't control any of it. It's like an out-of-body experience. And all of a sudden, you're standing on 7T and you you sort of wake up and you, you find your golf game from holes 7 to 12 or 13, and then you lose it again coming down the stretch. Um, trying to argue with that feeling requires so much internally of a player that their game suffers, where if you stood there on the tee, and your heart's a little bit in your throat, and you realize, so is everyone else's, number one. Number two, I need this. This is the feeling I need to succeed. If I didn't have this feeling, it would mean that I am not capable of achieving what I'm trying to do here today. The fact that I feel this way is telling me that I actually have a skill set to go out here and achieve something, and I need to use this to my benefit and not run from it. And that's that's the genius of it. I, I'm, I guarantee, you know, I, I certainly don't know Tom Brady or Michael Jordan, but um, they feel the thunder, but they used it. They didn't argue with it. They didn't run from it. And, and that's, that's really the key in a competitive environment to, to be successful. And I think, you know, you know your, your Phil Mickelson's of the world, your Tiger Woods, I think they welcome that challenge. They welcome that feeling. And, Truthfully, it's probably hard for them not to have it. If you've ever been around uh, a tour player and you watch them play on a Tuesday afternoon with their buddies, it's kind of no big deal. You know, players will watch them and go, well, they're not that good. And then they go to a tournament the next week and shoot 24 under par, right? Because on a Tuesday afternoon with their buddies, they don't have, it's not turned on, right? It's not. It doesn't have that level of excitement. It doesn't have that thrill. They're not into it. But all of a sudden, when they get into a PGA Tour event, boom, it's on. Right now, now, now they're ready to go, and they've turned that little extra little bit on, and they go low, and they make all these birdies and hit amazing shots. And we're all jealous of that. So how do you flip that switch? How do you turn it on? How do you use it for your benefit? So I think it's I think it's kind of a two way street here. So number one, it's acceptance, right? You have to accept that it's coming. Um, first and foremost, you literally have to accept it. Number two, that position actually puts you in a heightened state of awareness and focus. It's sort of that old fight or flight business, right? And it's putting you in a position to do. You can either you know, stick your head in the sand and go, oh, here we go again, right? Or you can step up to the plate. And if you kind of observe it or, or, or look at it as if this is my challenge today. So you, you sort of have to overcome it. 
from a standpoint and go, because your, your initial response is to go, oh, I'm not too sure about this. Oh, I'm nervous again, right? That's, that's kind of where everybody goes. Right. But once that happens, the second you convince yourself or just keep talking to yourself, I need this. This is exactly what I wanted. You, you just talk yourself into it. You're in a way better position. But most people will do the opposite and they will talk themselves out of it. And that's the key. Shane, like I say, you are one of the top instructors in our game. You've been recognized as such in two states, in Illinois and Arizona, obviously now out of Cherry Hills in Colorado. For our listeners tonight who say, I need to get lessons from this guy, how can they reach out to you and get a lesson? Uh, reach out to Ashley. Ashley handles everything for me. Um, I love the teaching side of it. I've discovered that uh, scheduling and, and, and is not my, not my strong suit. <laughs> Ashley handles everything. Her email is Ashley at plane, P-L-A-N-E, truthgolf.com. Ashley at plane, truthgolf.com. And, and she handles the schedule and um, she'll she'll get you in there. How do we spell Ashley? A-S-H-L-E-Y. There you go. Shane, thank you so much for coming back and being a part of the show again tonight. You're fantastic, my friend. It's always a privilege to get to spend some time with you. I hope we get that privilege again real soon. Well, Chris, I appreciate you. It's always fun to, to sit and visit with you. You have such cool guests on the show, and uh, I appreciate you allowing me to be part of it. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Thank you, Chris. Be good. You too. See you, Shane. That is a great Shane LeBaron, folks. Just one of the top instructors and top people that we have in our game. Again, Ashley at plaintruthgolf.com is how you can get on his, uh, on his lesson plan. A couple of things that I thought were fantastic that he talked about taking ownership of your game, having that confidence and then only feel pressure when you're capable, right? You only feel pressure when you're capable. And I think that's exactly right. Right. The pressure doesn't come about until you get into the pressure situation. You got there for a reason and you're going to get through it because you're capable of doing the thing that you want to do. And it's causing those butterflies. So have that confidence that you're there for a reason. Then you're going to push through it and you're going to achieve what you want because you only feel pressure when you're capable. Fantastic stuff. Hopefully we get to have Shane back on the show again real soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. I want to send out my sincere thanks again to Tom Patry, Jim Gallagher Jr., Lisa O'Hurley, and Shane LeBaron for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are one of the all-time great golf course designers, Reese Jones, will be back. Another one of the top instructors in our game. She's also an LPGA Top 50 instructor and a PGA Master Professional. Allison Kurt will be here. LPGA legend Jane Blaylock will be back as we look ahead to the U.S. Women's Senior Open. And former PGA Tour Pro turned great instructor and a great friend of the show, 
Dave Stockton Jr. will also be back as a part of the show as well. So it's going to be really fun, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audioboom, Player.fm, and on Good Pods. And my thanks to those folks for making this show one of their recommended podcasts. So please go online, download their free app, and stream your favorite podcast from your favorite device. But most of all, my thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.